0: I have an introduction this morning that is so Chilliwack. You ready? There was a farmer. Already nailed it. Just nailed it. Doesn't matter what's after. There was a farmer and uh, one of his best cows uh, was pregnant And uh, so he decided, you know, I'm going to, uh, this calf is going to be a great calf, and I'm going to sell it, and I'm going to give half the proceeds to the Lord. And he went inside the house and told his wife the news, and she was overjoyed, because they had talked about doing this for quite a while, but for one reason or another, he just kept having reasons why they wouldn't do something like this. And so she was just overjoyed that he was taking that step, and going to do something like that. Great. A while later, uh, he comes in the house and says, you will not believe it. So here we are, we've decided we're going to give half the proceeds for the, the sale of this calf to the Lord. And it turns out that this cow is pregnant with twin calves. Like, look at God's provision. Isn't he amazing? We decided, you know what, we'll give half of the proceeds and then he goes and, and, and there's twins and so what we can do is we can just keep one calf and we can sell the other calf and all of the proceeds can go to the Lord. And they're like, this is amazing. God is so good. A while later, he walks in the house and his face is just sunken. And his wife says, oh no, what's happened? And he looks at her and he says, the Lord's calf died. <laughs> we live in the wealthiest time, place that there's ever been. All right, the, the median family income, the, 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 the quality of life has never been greater. And we are, we don't really notice it happening because it just surrounds us constantly, but we are constantly so inundated with ads that tell us that our wants are actually our needs. No, you just don't want this. You need this. If you want your life to be full and great and amazing, you need to have this. We are told constantly, of all the G7 countries that sort of developed uh, at the forefront, countries of kind of wealth and trade and all of these things, of the G7 countries, Canadians have the highest percentage of consumer debt. It's really fascinating. If you look back in the 1950s, the average house square footage in Canada was like 900 square feet now it's like over 2000 square feet and you know what this this booming business in our economy right now the storage locker business so make sense of this with me in the midst of 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 life right now. Our houses have more than doubled in size, but they're still not big enough to contain all of our stuff. So we need to put the extra stuff that doesn't fit in our bigger houses into storage lockers so that we can have that stuff. It's an incredible, mind-blowing scenario. We are wealthy. We are so driven by things, and yet we're also in debt, and we're stressed about money. And then we come to church, and they do this awkward thing right after the singing, they pass this offering basket around, right? This this scenario where, you know, there's this impulse and inside of us there's kind of this like, oh, this warring of I I think I I should give and oh, they're always after my money and all of these kinds of thoughts go through our mind. Well, ah, our money's kind of spoken for, I don't really have anything in response and a lot of times what happens for us in our lives, week in, week out, is the Lord's calf died. We are starting a three-week series on generosity called Wealthy Generosity, Joyful Gospel Giving. It's been about five years since we've really focused in on this subject matter closely. I've, I've been told, right, the old adage is there's a few things you shouldn't talk about at the dinner table. One of them is religion, one of them is sex, one of them is money. We talk about all those things here, like, quite a bit, and, and I think that's a good thing. And and. So the rationale for us in this series is there's no kind of like giving campaign that we want to kind of throw at you part way. There's no agenda like that. The reality is that our our, our society, our own crooked hearts, really get sex pretty twisted and messed up and, and in our own hearts there's this idolatry factory going on and we take a good thing, a God created thing, and we twist it so much. And so we regularly need to talk in the church about God's design for sex, the, the beauty of it and, and, and how it's meant to live at work. And, and, and the same is true of money. Our hearts just get so wrapped up in in, in the amount of money we have or the stuff that it can get us or the security we think it will bring us. And so the reason for talking about it is because these are the kinds of things that are constantly warring, constantly pulling at our hearts to take our focus that's, that's meant to rest on Jesus and, and get us after these, these idols, really, If you were to read the Gospels, you would come to the conclusion, the understanding that Jesus talks a lot about money. In fact, he talks more about money than he talks about heaven and hell combined. And he actually talks about heaven a lot and hell a lot. But he talks about money more than he talks about heaven and hell. And he was never a fundraiser. So why did he do that? Well, we have the same reasons for talking about it here over the next three weeks. Is because Jesus is after your heart. He was after the hearts of his hearers, and his hearers' hearts were so tied up in stuff, in money, in worldly concerns and pursuits. And so this series for us is one where we hope that you will discover more joy in your life by tightening your grip on Jesus all the while loosening your grip on your money. Those two things always go hand in hand. As you discover more joy in Jesus, you will find that he is your satisfaction, he is your treasure and it just it lets uh, our stuff fit into its proper place and we can live with the kinds of generosity that he would have for us. So that's our prayer for us as we dive in. This morning, uh, we just, well, we finished a a series in 1 Corinthians, and now we're starting a new series. We're going to go to a very distant text, 2 Corinthians, okay? So you can move in your Bible just a little bit over. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And in the text we see in the first 15 verses, Paul is giving two examples and one invitation to the people to his hearers, and so we're going to trace those. So let's start with the first example. To, uh, it's about the Macedonians. Let's look at it, verses 1 to 7. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he would complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Let's stop there. Paul is giving the example of the Macedonian church. So let's set the stage here. What's going on in this text, which is actually the longest text in the whole Bible, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. We'll look at 2 Corinthians 9 next week. It's the longest passage in the Scriptures on giving and generosity in the entire Bible. And on the one hand, it's about Paul asking wealthy Gentiles to participate in the relief of poverty-stricken Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. But on the other hand, and the more dominant theme of the text, is actually all about right motivations for giving. He's seeking in them a spirit of generosity. It's ultimately about how grace affects our giving. I'm going to put a map on the screen, and I want you to see what's going on here. Um, the churches in Macedonia that we, that we read about here in verse 1 are, the, are in the, uh, the northern province of Greece where cities like Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea are. The, those are the churches in um, Ma, the Macedonian province. There's a province of Achaia in, in, uh, in the southern part of Greece where cities like Corinth and Athens are. And so Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, to to help with uh, the uh, alleviation of poverty to the church in Jerusalem, and he's letting them know that the church in in Macedonia is participating in it. And in his description of that, he uses some words that we don't normally see together. In verse 2, he says, In a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. They have, these, the churches in Macedonia, severe affliction and extreme poverty, and they're experiencing abundant joy and wealthy generosity. It's a fascinating scenario, and Paul wants to encourage the church in Corinth with it. Literally, when it's saying in a severe test of affliction, it carries the literal idea that they were being crushed by life the macedonian christians were being crushed by life the area wasn't poor by any stretch they weren't as wealthy as the corinthians the corinthians were this port city crossroads of trade a lot of wealth coming through corinth not as wealthy But that that province of Macedonia was not poor by any stretch, but the church was. The Christians were experiencing religious persecution. To follow Jesus cost them financially at that time. The culture around them was putting more and more pressure on them because of their devotion to Jesus. So it not only says that they have this uh, severe... uh, test of affliction, which means they were being crushed by life, but we also see that they had extreme poverty, and the the most literal translation of those words would be that they had down-to-the-depth poverty, right down-to-the-bottom poverty, severely afflicted, extremely poor. Unless you've traveled to poverty-stricken areas in the developing world, you probably have no comprehension of first-century poverty, like just trying to eat enough in a day. Some of you have seen that in parts of the world. Poverty, even in our context, cannot compare to this kind of poverty. The churches in Macedonia were poor. They were suffering for the gospel, and it was affecting their income. In other words, the churches in Macedonia were poor, and they were picked on one commentator said they had crushing tribulation and grinding poverty that sounds awful it sounds like their lives were miserable it sounds like the government was putting the kind of pressure where we might not get interns for the summer you know just like just really really persecuted you know what i mean actually they changed that back by the way so that's great our affliction's gone So they are truly being afflicted, crushing tribulation, grinding poverty, and yet you want to know what the spirit of the church was? These Macedonians, these Christians in Macedonia, they were experiencing abundant joy and a wealth of generosity. That's what's so staggering. The context would say, how could they be? They must be terrified. They must be hopeless. They must be down in the dumps. They've got nothing. This is awful. Life must be so wretched. And they're like, we are abundant in joy. And we are so privileged to be generous to the other churches. That was what was going on for them. In the midst of their affliction and poverty, the Macedonian church had great joy and generosity. It goes even further. In verse four, it says that they were begging us earnestly, Paul is saying, for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. An early church father named Chrysostom said, they did the begging, not Paul. So Paul's writing to the Corinthians, this really wealthy church, and is like, would you contribute in the relief of the saints? Meanwhile, the Macedonians who aren't being petitioned by Paul to give are begging Paul for the privilege of participating in the relief of the saints as they themselves are in poverty. Paul did no begging. The church did the begging that they might participate. They're persecuted. They're poverty-stricken. They're afflicted. And they're finding great joy in giving. (sighs) Ah. The Macedonians continued to, to, I think, have lessons for us. And and why could they? That makes no sense in the human level, on the ground. Makes no sense that they would experience joy and generosity in the midst of poverty and persecution. But verse 5 makes it clear. Verse 5 tells us that they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. This was a church so grounded in the gospel that the outflow became joy and generosity. Their starting place wasn't, I think we should give, but we don't have anything. What do we do? Their starting place was, look at Jesus. Look at the gospel. Look what he's done. Look who he is. They're filled with abundant joy, and it overflowed. It poured out into generosity towards others. It's an incredible thing. In verses 6 and 7, we see that Paul calls their, their generosity an act of grace. I love that phrase. Their generosity, the generosity of the Macedonian church, what Paul is just calling an act of grace. Now, there are many acts of grace. Love towards one another, compassion, kindness, encouragement, like all of these things, those are acts of grace. Grace. Right, Gathering together as the church, this is a means of grace or an act of grace. God uses it to edify and encourage. But it's interesting, in verse 7, he says, As you excel, Corinthian church, in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. That act of grace being generosity. Now, we would all agree. What does the Christian want to do? Yes, they want to grow in faith, right? The goal of our of our faith is that we would grow. And as we grow in our faith, that we would grow in our knowledge of Him, that we would be students of the Word. And as we understand it, that we would apply it, that it would work itself out, and we would grow in speech. Another act of grace that we would say, ah, this is Jesus, and this is the gospel, and I want to speak it, I want to proclaim it, and grow in that. Grow in an earnestness, a hunger, a desire to serve Jesus with all we've got. Yes, we should grow in that, and grow in love, He says in verse 7. Yes, the church ought to grow in love. These are all Christian traits. And He says, and I would love to see you grow also in the act of generosity. the spiritual discipline, the outflow of the gospel, which is generosity. In other words, as you will have testimony about sharing Jesus with people, as you have testimony of people coming to Christ and growing in Christ, and growing in our love for one another, we should also have a testimony that our bank account can tell, that we've encountered Jesus and the gospel makes us, generous. He's saying, grow in this act of grace also. Now, he moves from this incredible example of a church in poverty, a church in affliction, that's finding great joy in in being generous, and it pales in comparison to the next example in our text, and that example is Jesus. In verse 8, it goes on to say, I say this not as a command but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. He's pointing back to 1 Corinthians 16, where the year previous he had given them a call to make a collection for Christians in need for the gospel to continue to be proclaimed. And he's inviting them now to pick up on it. But the great example he's giving, the great motivation he's giving is that we would see Jesus. And when it says that though he was rich, referring to Jesus, it's like the greatest understatement that's ever been stated. That Jesus was rich. You know? It's a a colossal understatement because Jesus was the richest. No one richer than Jesus. Colossians 1.15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. What 1 Corinthians 1 is telling us about Jesus is everything in the universe is his. It's all his. You want to talk about riches? Jesus had riches. Though he was rich... He became poor. He was rich in having all the riches in the universe, but for your sake and mine, he became poor, meaning he became mortal. He became vulnerable. He became killable. He lived on the earth and had nothing to his name but the clothes on his back, and at the cross, he was stripped even of those. And then he died on the cross paying a debt that was not his but was ours. He went from rich to poor. He gave up everything so that we could get everything. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you might become rich. Rich. Philippians 2 puts it this way Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. From ruler of the universe to servant of all. When Jesus came as a baby and died on a cross, this was God giving himself. Away, Jesus had many appearances in the Old Testament. Theological word of the day is theophany, appearances of God, theophany, appearances of God in the Old Testament, like a, a smoking furnace or a burning bush or a tornado. Like God revealed himself in the Old Testament in these kinds of ways. How does he reveal himself most vulnerably though? In a baby. This is Jesus. This is God becoming vulnerable. This is God in the flesh giving himself away. And if we could catch that, we would recognize then that it's no great feat for us to give ourselves away in response. And that's what Paul's after as he's giving this description and example of Jesus. And so then he moves from there, having given this incredible example of churches in Macedonia, the gospel example of Jesus and all that he's done for us. And then he leaves the Corinthians with an invitation. An invitation to excel in this act of grace, this generosity. He says in verse 11, so now now finish doing it as well so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. I'm going to conclude our time here by asking you a few questions that I think the text draws out. And I, I, this is where, where I think some real applications should hit us all. How do you approach money and giving money to the Lord? Do you approach it more with the law or more with the gospel? See, the law is, when we start to talk about things like generosity, it kind of has this... This is the way the New Testament, by the way, talks about giving. The Old Testament, it's a tithe, which literally means 10%. So, like, you know, 10% of your grain, 10% of your sheep, 10% of your... Like, okay, that's clean, that's neat and tidy. And a lot of times, as we approach it, we're just like, okay, what are we supposed to give? Like, what do you... Tell me the number, right? Then I'll give that number. Like, what is it supposed to be? I need a law. Like, we're actually we're driven that way. We want law, not gospel. And the gospel leaves us with a little more complexity in terms of response. And there's also a danger in just being like, give me a number. Because if we flesh out what the law does, it does this. It often reveals these ulterior motives in us when we're really after law, not after the gospel. See, when the question is, how much do I have to give? It's actually about giving to get. Do you realize that? Okay, how much am I supposed to give? Just tell me what I'm supposed to give. What's the the motivation behind that? It's this. how, How much do I have to give so that others think I'm generous? That's giving to get. How much do I have to give so I'm acceptable in this place? That's giving to have a certain status upon you among the community. How much do I have to give in order to be right with God? Like what's the dollar value? Cuz I'll just I'll get I'll just get there right on that level. What is the number that will make me right with God? Tell it to me. I'll do it. But see, the motivation isn't abundant overflow of the gospel and grateful response. The motivation is what makes me right with God when it comes to money. I want to know the number. How much do I have to give to get to that point where God's going to multiply my giving in giving it back to me. Like, what's that kind of number? What's that space? Maybe if we give a little extra, he's going to bless us with some kind of raise real quick. So I'm going to give. Why? Give to get. Do you approach money like that? You're giving like that? Are you a law person when it comes to your money, or are you a gospel person? See, giving is not an act of the law for the new covenant humanity. Giving is an act of grace It's about what God has given to us in the gospel so that we can give ourselves away to others. It's all about heart change. It's this, I've encountered Jesus, and now I'm looking primarily for people to bless, not items to buy. I'm looking primarily of how much can I give away as opposed to how much can I keep and give just enough away to be acceptable. So a number of different faulty motives may inspire us to give generously, but only a real appreciation of God's grace to us can prompt us to give joyfully, to give in a Macedonian-like way, to actually have a Christ-likeness about us in our giving. Another question for you, are you a person who, if you've given your life to Jesus, surrendered your life to Christ, are you a person who dwells regularly on the gospel? See, what what happened in verse 5, like I said, is is, is that they gave themselves to the Lord first, and then their generosity became an outflow of that. It became this joyful motivation as opposed to this, like, legal deed. And and that only happens as we actually dwell on, believe in, are thankful for, gratitude wells up in the gospel in us. Is that your regular practice, to dwell on the gospel and then let, let... Your stuff kind of work itself out from there. A practice we have as the pastors, we get together on Tuesdays, many of you as life groups do the same thing. And we start with this. We ask, what are the evidences of God's grace you've seen among us in our church in our ministry what's god been doing how's he been revealing himself how's he been working and we just listen to each other about somebody coming to christ at youth or somebody coming to christ on a sunday morning or we hear about somebody just growing in their giftedness and stepping out in faith and some a, a marriage being reconciled over here and we hear stories of god just rallying people lovingly in the church around people in need right now and just beautiful thing. We can talk for ages about this, and at a certain point, we just kind of cut off the evidences of God's grace, and we pray praise. We say, thank you, Jesus, for being alive, for working among us, that your spirit is moving in this place, that people are giving themselves to faithfulness. We just stir one another up, recognizing that Jesus is at work in our midst, and as we do that, that creates a, gener- a gratefulness where generosity is a natural outflow if we believe God is truly good. If we recognize that he is really moving and working, do you dwell on the gospel? Another question, are you giving so there's a pinch? Would that be a fair description of your handling of your money, your stuff? Giving to the point where there's a pinch, where it costs, you know what I mean? Back in First Corinthians 16, Paul instructs them on the first day of every week which is, which is a Sunday, which is Resurrection Sunday, The church from the very get-go started to meet on the day Jesus rose, because every Sunday it was this emphasis, Jesus is alive, Jesus is risen, the gospel is real. On the first day of every week, he instructs them, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. See, what the church in Corinth are instructed to do is set aside money at their gatherings each Sunday for kingdom ministry, They are to think, we're meeting on Sunday, the day that Jesus rose, and we're giving out of that truth, out of that reality in great gratitude. He's calling them to give regularly and to give in a disciplined manner. There's a routine. It's woven into their pattern of life. It's budgeted. It's accounted for. It actually costs them. Are the words every week or every month a fair representation of your giving to the Lord? If not, Paul lays out a call to disciple, discipline frequency here. Now, for some, it's a pinch to even give a little, to even give a small amount. For others, even a large amount doesn't even make a dent and affect your lifestyle. Jesus was sitting at the temple one day with his disciples, and they were observing the people going forward and, and giving their tithe. And many of these people were giving in out of their abundance. Like, they were giving a lot. They were giving a lot, but they were giving out of their abundance. And then there was a widow who went up and put in two coins, or like what we refer to as the widow's mite, which is literally like a hundredth of a day's wages. So he's putting in one or two dollars. And Jesus gets his disciples to observe this scene and said, all those people who, grave, who just gave large sums, they gave out of their abundance, but she gave out, gave out of her poverty They gave in such a way that it didn't even cost them. It didn't even pinch. She gave out of the nothingness she had. She gave all. Jesus actually says in this story, she gave more. She gave more. She gave comparatively little, but Jesus told his disciples she gave more. So it's not a matter of how much you're giving. It's a matter of, are you giving to the point where it costs you? Like it alters your lifestyle in one way, shape, or form. I know of a businessman who, who um, is wired very differently than me, where everything he touches turns into money. Um, everything I seem to touch turns into bills, right? This is a very different gifting I, I envy people like this a little bit, but God bless him because he recognized that he was just, God had, God had really given him a lot of favor and he, everything he touched, his business just kept growing. And he was at a point in his life when he was giving like 10% away to the Lord. And as he read the scriptures, as he mined like what a response to the gospel might look like, he just became so convicted because he was giving 10% away and it was a lot of money. He was the great giver of his church, right? Because he was giving huge amounts of money and yet it cost him nothing while others were giving little sums and it was costing them so Much And so he had this uh, graduated tithe. He began to do as his business kept growing, his giving kept growing to the point where he was he was like giving 20 percent and keeping 80, giving 30 percent, keeping 70 to the point where he was giving 90 percent, keeping 10 because it was only there he discovered that it changed anything in regards to his lifestyle it's only now started to pinch for me. I'm giving 90 away and keeping 10 and it's changing how I live. I'm buying less stuff. I'm sacrificing. I'm sacrificial in my giving and that's what God wants from me. What an incredible thing. I was looking back in my notes. I I, I spoke, I think the last time we did a series on money was like five years ago. And I was looking back in my notes and I, I discovered that I told a story of a man who approached the C2C network, which was connected to the MB conference, planting churches across Canada where churches are disappearing in cities. We're, tr- we're trying to see uh, churches planted in cities. And he went up to the c to c guys uh, at the beginning of December of that particular year and uh, said, whatever the shortfall, I'll pay it. It was like $500,000. He's like, whatever the shortfall is, I'll pay it because you guys... Jesus is using you to build his kingdom. Like, Jesus is using you on the mission. So I want to give to that. And he was able, and I thought, wow, that's an amazing story, and I told that here. What's really, really cool is God's been doing a work in us as we've, we, we've discovered that God's calling us to plant churches in, in communities that literally have no church, revitalizing churches in places that need a gospel outpost in their community, to proclaim the gospel and engage the community in a loving, meaningful way. Way And and it's stretched us. Our budget is growing and growing and growing. And there's like this faith risk there. It's uncomfortable for us. It's dangerous. It's exciting. And I was reflecting on this story I told of someone coming up and asking, hey, what's the need? I'll meet it. Well, we had someone in our church do that in October. I have no idea who it is. Approached one of our elders and said, whatever the shortfall is to this point in October of this past year, I want to make up the difference. I think it's something in the vicinity of 30-something thousand dollars. I believe in what God's doing. I see the impact I'm in. We want to see people reach for Jesus. We want to proclaim Jesus. We want needs met through the church. And so rising to that, just as a little bit of an aside, Central, you gave $1.63 million last year. That is exponential growth compared to anything you've ever given before. And I'm, that's testimony. I wanna encourage you with that because as God has called us to things that seem unattainable to us, such a stretch to us, He is corporately working in such a way that, that we're giving much, but it trickles all the way down to every household giving in generosity, and I just want to say thank you for recognizing the the gospel ministry and for fueling it with your generosity. That is incredible testimony. Paul is saying in this text, as a matter of fairness, we're to give as we've been blessed to do so. The terms are willing and joyful, generous and sacrificial, disciplined, regular, proportionate giving. And we all need to discover what that is for us and give to the point where it is a pinch. Another question that's not so much about uh, for the folks that may need to give 90% away and keep 10. Let's, let's look at the reverse side of things. Are you waiting to give? Are you waiting to give? Like, I'll give when I have more? Like, there, there are households in our church that give nothing. And, and, and a lot of times the motivation is, I'll give when I can. And the reality is that Jesus is after your heart, Jesus is after your joy, Jesus is after you encountering the generosity of the gospel in such a way that it actually makes you a generous person. And if you're giving nothing, that radical work has yet to be done. See, the reality is if you won't give now, you won't give later. The widow's might. If there was ever a person to have a reason not to give, it was her, she literally put in all she had. I want to give you an invitation if if there's no frequency in your giving to the Lord, to his work, to his cause in the world, I want to give you a challenge give now. And then as God gives you more responsibility, give more then. But but give now, give to the Lord. I encourage you to lean into the gospel, rejoice in the gospel, and give something. God will use that. Another question, another awkward question. It is quiet. Another question. When you think about your finances, do you approach it more as an owner or as a manager? As an owner or a steward? When our first little little baby boy was born, I just a regular prayer of ours. Emily and I would stand over his crib and pray, like almost every night. Lord, you've entrusted him, and now these two boys of ours, you've entrusted them to us. They're yours. They're made in your image, God. They're your kids. They're your creations. You've entrusted them to us, though. Lord, in bearing that responsibility, we ask for your mercy in helping us parent them. We have no clue what we're doing, right? Anybody relate? We have no clue what we're doing, Lord. Help us. You've entrusted them to us. What? To love them, to meet their needs, to raise them to know Jesus, to lovingly raise them to know you, God, That's what you've entrusted them to us for. Find us faithful. See, we're to approach absolutely everything we've got that way. Our living situation, the stuff we have, the income that comes into our accounts every two weeks or one month or whatever it is. He's entrusted all of that to us. In fact, Jesus tells a parable in Matthew 25 where he talks about a master who entrusts his wealth to his servants. And he talks about it as talents, and he gives five talents, which is like five million bucks, a large sum to one servant, two to another, one to another. When he comes back, the one who had been entrusted with five, leveraged it, got creative, invested it, used it to the best of his ability, recognizing it was his master's, not his. He was a steward, but when his master returned, he said, look what I have done with your wealth. I turned five to ten. And he said, well done, enter my joy. To the one who had two, he had invested and leveraged and gotten creative. And the, the, the wealth that he had been entrusted with, he turned that two into four. And he got the exact same response from the master. Well done, enter my joy. And to the the servant who had been entrusted with one who had buried it and done nothing with it, handed it back to the master and said, here you go, I kept it safe, it's all there. And he said, you wicked servant and cast him into outer darkness. Now this is actually a story about Jesus and his disciples, those who would follow him. What do we do with all the everything that Jesus has entrusted to us? do we act as owners or as managers? It's mine or it's his. See, as the gospel impacts our lives, it it starts to, to tighten our grip on him and loosen our grip on our stuff. We say, oh, I see. I'm a conduit. He's given me these things so I can bless others. He's blessed me so richly so I can be a blessing and so that my life can go towards his ends, which is my final question. Which kingdom are you investing in? He ends this passage by saying, as it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. That is a reference to the Exodus where God has freed the Israelites from slavery and they go out into the wilderness and there's just massive crowds of them and there's just no way that they can you know, build a little hipster vegetable garden in their backyards. There's just not enough space. There's just no way that they can all go hunt and gather. There's just way, way, way too too many of them. We have a hipster garden, by the way. It's just a very cute little box. Doesn't grow things very well, but anyways, we can, we can Instagram about it, so that's cool. Um, now, see, the thing about this is, is he, so, so they're like, what are we doing? We're going to die out here, all the Israelites are saying. And then God supplies their need every day with manna, this flowery substance that came from heaven every day and landed on the ground, and they were to go gather it. They were to put in a little bit of work. Those more able-bodied could gather more, and those who weren't so able were able to get the more from some of the others who could gather more, so everybody's needs were met. They had to go out and collect it, and those who gathered more were to share with those who had less, and if they tried to hoard it, it would actually rot and be maggot-infested. And what we're to learn about this is that we need to start to see everything we have as a gift from him. Do we put in work so that we get what we get? Certainly, but it's all from him, right? Our father in heaven actually supplies our need every single day. We do put in some work, we gather it up, but it's his. And he will meet our daily need. And if we keep too much, if we're not generous with it and we store up too much for ourselves, it'll rot, not some bowl with maggots in it. It will rot our souls. Jesus says the same thing in Luke 12, where he tells the parable of the rich fool. Now, if you relate to the parable of the rich fool, that's not a good thing, because the dude in the parable is called a fool. And it says in Luke 12, that he told them a parable, saying, the land of the rich man produced plentifully... And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, my soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink drink, and be merry. When it says, I will store up my grain and my goods in larger, bigger barns, not just my, 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 my harvest, but also my goods, what the literal translation is, I will build larger dwellings for my quads and my campers. That's literally the, the Greek. Just a joke. Um, and I will say to my soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool. This night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Which kingdom are you building here? Which kingdom are you invested in? The kingdom of you or the kingdom of God? See, it all comes to ownership. Whose is it? And as we loosen our grip on our stuff, as we tighten our grip to Jesus, he just just reinforces through our bank accounts this reality that he is sufficient. He will meet my daily need and what he's entrusting to me is merely so that I might be a manager, a conduit and bless people, bless the nations as Psalm 67 would put it. Finally, as we close, There was this man named Zacchaeus, and he was a wee little man. Like a wee little man was he, and he um, climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see, and I don't remember how the rest of it goes. I I probably started fooling around in Sunday school right at that point. I don't remember the latter bit. And Jesus comes along, and he sees Zacchaeus, a little man in a tree. (laughs) And in in the midst of a crowd, he's like, I'm coming to your house. And this shocked the crowd because he was the most despised man in the whole region. Because he was the tax collector of tax collectors. He was the chief of tax collectors. He was Jewish. But he worked for the Roman occupation, collecting taxes for the Romans. And not only that, he'd take a lot off the top so that he could live a luxurious life on the backs of his own people. But Jesus comes over to his house. And they spend some time together. And Zacchaeus found in that encounter that in Jesus, he he found what he thought he'd find in getting rich. When he sat with Jesus, he finally found satisfaction. The satisfaction he had been pursuing on the back of one person after the other, after the other. That satisfaction that was so fleeting had been found in Jesus Before he encountered Jesus, he was mastered by the passion to get. But having encountered Jesus, he was now mastered by the passion to give. We're told earlier that there's this rich young ruler who approached Jesus. It's like, I keep the whole law. And Jesus is like, that's great. One thing you lack, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. He can't do it. He walks away sad. Zacchaeus, the worst man in the land, encounters Jesus and he comes out of his house proclaiming, I'm giving half of everything to the poor and every person that I have cheated, I'm giving four times as much back. He encountered Jesus and he became generous. That's my heart, that's my prayer for you because these two things always collide. Tighten your grip to Jesus, loosen your grip on your stuff, Recognize that he is sufficient and everything that you've been entrusted with is merely to be poured out to be a blessing. We're gonna take communion and I just wanna reiterate verse nine as we prepare for that. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich yet for your sake became poor so that by his poverty we might become rich. This so is the gospel. When Jesus poured His lifeblood out on the cross, he paid our debt so that we could get out of our crippling debt of sin and have the riches, the spiritual riches of the gospel, of grace, of goodness, of satisfaction, of acceptance by God and an eternity promised with him that we could get all that as he poured himself out And so we're going to have the communion servers come into place. We're going to respond with a couple of songs. And if you believe, yeah, I believe Jesus did that for me, I just invite you over the course of those songs to come and receive. Just in the quietness of your heart, thank Jesus, repent of sin, recognize he paid it on the cross, that our riches are his because he gave his riches to us. Let's pray and let's respond in those ways. Jesus, thank you that you've given us in the gospel everything necessary to change the parts of our lives that need to change. Thank you that the gospel makes us generous. So Lord, we lean into you right now. We wanna know you more. We wanna grow in our gratitude, our thanks, our awareness of who you are and all you've done. Oh Jesus, we recognize that there is so much that can be done in our church and our community and in our own hearts if we would be generous. We look to Jesus now. We look to the cross. We look to the table, and we thank you. Amen.